Well, hello, everyone. Let me uh, hit you with an idea and see how you feel about this. I'm convinced that accountability is the key to success. Now, how do you feel about that statement? This week, I took the time to look up a number of current articles on accountability, and I was a, a bit overwhelmed with how much business leaders, CEOs, uh, top executives, people who train leaders talk about the value of accountability within the culture of just about any organization. In fact, they'll say that if you don't have accountability, you're not only going to have high turnover of employees, there's going to be also a very low level of trust. There's going to be uh, a decreased employee engagement. They're just going to be kind of going through the motions and that kind of thing. And one of the worst outcomes is low team morale. Everybody's just kind of down and out because they know the people aren't held accountable for their attitudes and actions. So you can be sure that organizations of all different kinds are are searching for ways, supervisors are searching for more meaningful ways to keep people accountable. And boy, it's being discovered that that is a huge motivator for almost any employee. I would suggest to you that the same is true with sports teams as well. Everybody knows what happens later today, right? There's gonna be a big old wonderful Super Bowl. And it's projected to be the most watched Super Bowl to this point. There's a data analytics company called Predict HQ, which is predicting that this Super Bowl today will be watched by 117 million Americans alone. That's not all around the world. This is just Americans, 117. And if that comes true, it will be the most watched Super Bowl Today, as you probably know, the Cincinnati Bengals are playing the Los Angeles Rams. What you may not know is that both of these teams make a big deal about how much accountability they have in their team culture, and they both credit that as being responsible for their winning ways. Just consider the Bengals, for example. If you know anything about the Bengals, they've been in the cellar for a long time. I mean, for the last three years prior to this, they were at the bottom of their division. And yet this year, suddenly, they're playing for the Super Bowl. How can that be? How do you explain such a turnaround? Well, if you look up articles about the culture of the team, sports writers were saying that the culture of the Bengals was toxic a few years ago. And they give examples. For instance, one player would make a mistake and would get reamed out by a coach for that mistake. Another player would make the exact same mistake with no repercussions because the coach, it is said, was playing favorites. But now all of that has changed. The toxic culture is gone. The low performance culture is a thing of the past. Now, the culture is described on the Bengals as one of trust, 
where there are healthy relationships and above all, high accountability. And here's what that means. Players wanna bring their A game every single day. They all know, coaches will tell you, they all know you're gonna be held accountable here for your attitudes and actions every single day. Good behavior is gonna be rewarded and there will be repercussions for bad behavior as well. So accountability, what do you think of it? Webster defines accountability as the obligation or willingness to accept responsibility for one's actions. And again, let me say, everywhere in our society, people are recognizing how important accountability is. Did you know that God valued accountability long before the Rams and the Bengals did? God says a whole lot about accountability in his word. For instance, in the book of Romans chapter 14, it says, for we, were all, we will all, all of us, will stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow me before me, every tongue will confess to God. And then verse 12 says, so then each of us will give an account of himself or herself to God. Accountability. That infuses life with meaning. It means that what I do really matters. By the way, this idea of a great day of judgment, sometime in scripture, it's just called the day, and you need to be aware of that. So if you ever see just the day in scripture, it's probably referring to judgment day. There's so many passages, we, it would take us hours to begin to explore all of them. But the fact that a judgment day is coming, when each of us will stand before Almighty God, infuses every moment with meaning. It means that every motive I have matters, every action matters. In fact, here's one that'll stun you. According to Matthew chapter 12, I will give an account one day for every idle word I have spoken. I'm gonna give an account in the day of judgment. So in other words, we're not these impersonal cogs in a machine. You and I, as human beings, have the dignity, we have the responsibility of being accountable for how we live. And although that sobers me greatly, I'm actually quite thankful that God cares about accountability. So today, as we kick off this new series that I'm calling Every Moment Matters, my prayer is that God will use his word, living and active as it is, to stoke us all for all the right reasons to bring our game, our A game to God every single day. Because that's what he's looking for. So on this Super Bowl Sunday, here's our game plan. Gang, here's our game plan. Huddle up here. What we're gonna do is look primarily at one verse. I've picked a verse that, in my opinion, is sort of a classic primer on accountability, on that great judgment day. And I want us to look primarily at this one verse. It's found in 2 Corinthians 
chapter five, and it is verse 10. And there is so much we can learn from this about the great day that is to come. Here's what it says. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him or her for the things done while in the body, that is while we're living on the planet, that's just code language for while we're living here on planet Earth, whether good or bad. There are few verses in the Bible that make more of a difference in the way we live than that verse. In fact, if that verse doesn't greatly impact you, you must not understand it. Because that verse is sobering. It will change the culture in your family. It'll change the culture in the church. It'll change the way you conduct your own personal life. And if we really get it, it will make us want to bring our A game to God every single day. So here we go. I want you to notice with me four things that this verse teaches, and all of these are also taught throughout Scripture, but there's four things. This is why I call it a primer on judgment and accountability. Four things I want us to nail down and take away today. Number one, the judgment is for everyone. No one's left out. You see that? from the first part of the verse again, for we must all appear, all of us, before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, let me go on one little rabbit trail here. I'm not gonna stay long, but when you get into this discussion of judgment, biblical scholars have a, a, a different views about that. Some scholars believe there are multiple judgments. Some believe two, some believe three, some believe five. I actually read one guy who believes there's seven different judgments, and it kind of gets confusing. Now, you say, well, how can they believe that? Here's all they're doing. They're reading all the passages on judgment, and as I told you, there are many of them, many of them, and they're seeing different angles on this thing. I'm gonna take the position that there's just one judgment. One judgment. Not five, not three, not seven. There's one judgment, but the different biblical passage passages are simply looking at different angles on that day. Now, with that said, you may recall that through the years, I have often said to you, in fact, I've preached this multiple times, that on the great judgment day, there's only two questions, just two. I even said to you one time, this is Cliff's notes on the Bible right here. If you get these two questions down, you got it. You're ready. Here they are, the Savior question and the stewardship question. That's it. That's the full test on Judgment Day, the Savior question and the stewardship question. And I will stand by that. That is absolutely true. What is the Savior question? This is what have I done with Jesus Christ and his atoning death for me on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and his offer of salvation and forgiveness of sins by grace. What have I done with all that? What have I done with Jesus Christ? Have I rejected him or accepted him as my Lord and Savior? Have I 
thrust him aside and ignored him, or have I trusted him and lived my life for him? Now, one of those many passages is in the book of Revelation, chapter 20. To me, it's one of the most gripping passages on judgment. John, under inspiration of the Spirit, says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky, fled from his presence. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Get this part. And books were opened. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. And then verse 15, just a couple of verses later, says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, the book of life. And then in the very next chapter, after a gorgeous description of what heaven is going to be like, chapter 21, verse 27, mentions that book again and calls it the Lamb's book of life. It says of heaven, nothing impure will ever enter it, that is, heaven nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Who's the Lamb? In John's language, of course, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's introduced in John chapter one, in the Gospel of John. As John the baptizer cries out when he sees Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God. It's clearly talking about Jesus, the one who died on the cross in atoning death for our sins. Jesus took the penalty that my sins demanded, and he paid that penalty for me. He paid it for you. And Revelation says that this substitute, this lamb who was slain for your sins and mine has a book of life. And written in that book are the names of those who have trusted in his finished work at the cross as full payment for their sins. That's the only way you get your name in the lamb's book of life is through repentance of sin and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So I just got to pause here and ask you a question. Is your name in the book? Is your name in the Lamb's book of life? Nothing more important than that. Have you trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? and new life in him. Those whose names are in the book are welcomed into his eternal presence. Those whose names are not are cast out of his presence for eternity. Now, here's why this is so staggering, because there's no middle ground. And when you stand before the great white throne, there's no place for second chances or do-overs. That all comes now. The teaching is crystal clear. It's appointed into a person once to die. And after that, the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27 tells us. So right now, 
it can be a little confusing for people because the weeds and the wheat are growing together. But on judgment day, they get separated. And the separation is decisive. It is permanent. And at that point, you're either in or out. So I gotta ask you again, what is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Your name is either in the Lamb's Book of Life or it's not based on what you've done with that Savior question. What is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? And if your name is not written there in his blood, there is no plan B. There is no excuses. There's no way around it. You will be found without excuse on that day. I, I, I hold back the tears when I bring you that message. Do not dally with God on that. By the way, excuse me, just by the way, that's why the, ah, that's why the mission of this church is so important. It's both urgent and important. Pastor, why is it urgent? Because time is running out. Why is it, why is it important? Because there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And that's why, oh, I didn't know this was going to happen, sorry. That's why we plead with people to come to Jesus Christ and be reconciled to him while there's time. That's the Savior question. So, but then there's that second question that I've told you about for years, and it's the stewardship question. Now, again, the Savior question is what do I do with Jesus and his offer of salvation by grace through faith? That determines my entrance into heaven. But the stewardship question is, what did I do with everything else he gave me? The stewardship question has nothing to do with my entrance to heaven. We're gonna talk about this more next week. I really don't want there to be any confusion around this. The stewardship question does have to do with my rewards in heaven. For instance, what did I do with the time he gave me? Did I use it well or did I fritter it away? What did I do with the relational influence God gave me? Did I represent him well or poorly? What did I do with the mind he gave me? Did I love God with all of my mind or did I focus on trivia and let my mind atrophy? What did I do about the financial resources that God entrusted to me on, in, in this world? Did I, did I faithfully tithe and did I use God's money wisely for good purposes? Or did I spend an inordinate portion of it on my own selfish desires? All of that and much, much more is a part of the stewardship question. Has nothing to do whether I enter heaven or not. That's, that's the savior question. The stewardship question has to do with my evaluation on judgment day about my reward, and man, does scripture say a lot about that. So over the next 
couple of weeks, we're going to talk quite a bit about that reward part. Now, this bima seat mentioned here, and the Greek word is the Greek word bima, it would have immediately conjured up in the minds of the Corinthians one of two things. First of all, it would have conjured up the idea of the Roman emperor who sat on the bema seat. He had the ultimate authority in the Roman Empire. He was where the buck stopped. So that would have been sort of an, an interesting parallel to God Almighty. They would have at least gotten the idea of ultimate authority. But secondly... This Bema seat probably would have conjured up to the Corinthian Christians who first received this word from the Apostle Paul, it probably would have conjured up one form of the Olympic Games that existed in that day. Many of you have been watching the Winter Olympics, and, and boy, what a moving moment it is when an athlete that has worked so hard and for years has given the ultimate effort of sacrifice and sweat and blood to be the best at their particular sport. And then they stand. They stand humbled and yet so satisfied on this platform and they receive this award of a medal. What a, what a picture that is. And that's the dais that that would have been pictured by the Corinthian Christians when Paul used the word bema. I'm amazed, frankly, that we don't talk more about that. There seems to be almost a conspiracy of silence, but folks, we serve a God who is a rewarder, according to Hebrews 11.6. We've got to understand that. God delights in rewarding his people. Jesus said in Matthew 6, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Rather, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. So we store up treasure in many different ways. We'll look at some of those in the next couple of weeks, and it greatly impacts the rewards that we receive on Judgment Day. So I should have warned you, point number one is going to be a lot longer than any of the other points, so be encouraged right now. I'm going to go through the other three <laughs> rather quickly, but please get this. No one is exempt. It's for everyone. Say, Pastor, I don't like that. Sorry, you're going to be there. Say, Pastor, I don't want to think about that. Yeah, I know it's kind of a hard thought, but it's for you. Say, well, I, I, I'm not ready for that. Well, sorry, you better get ready because it is coming and it is real. Second thing I want you to see from this little primer of a verse here is that the judgment is public. Public. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to appear there, appear. The language lets us know that it is visible and public. It won't be a secret. We're not gonna be able to say, hey, God, can we go back to a smoky room somewhere, just you and me, because I'm kind of embarrassed about the horrible things I've done. Can we just kind of deal with that stuff privately? It won't work that way. Scripture uses a lot of language to show that what's been done in secret is going to be brought out into the light. Consider this verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, 
judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. I don't know about you, but that is one of the most sobering verses in the Bible to me. God judging our actions would be enough. But this says he's not only gonna judge what we do, he's gonna evaluate why we did what we did. You say, well, pastor, what are the implications of that? What does that mean? Can I tell you what that means? The truth is gonna come out, baby. It's gonna come out. Is it a pandemic or a pandemic? I don't know if that matters to you or not, but the truth is gonna come out. Some woman says, well, my ex-husband, what did he do when he went on those supposed business trips? Ma'am, the truth is gonna come out. You say, well, what about my coworker who stabbed me in the back and started all of those gossip, all those lies and all that suspicion around me and I lost my job over that? What was, what was in her heart when she did that? The truth is going to come out. And before you say amen, you may want to pause for a moment because you might want to say, oh, me. <laughs> right? Listen, among other things, this should cause us to be a little less quick in making judgments. Why? Because we may know, we, we may think we know what's in someone's heart, but we don't really know. God's going to make it known. And this should also make us chill out a little bit more about trying to vindicate ourselves all the time and prove that we're right. Let God be your vindicator. God's gonna make it known one day. All those people who lied about you, all those bad things that were done, all that misunderstanding, listen, it's going to come out one day. Jesus said in Luke 8, for there's nothing hidden, get this now, that will not be disclosed. Nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Some of you have been horribly misunderstood in your life. Some of you have been wrongly accused. You've been vilified, you have been slandered, and you are deeply wounded by it. I hope you can take some comfort from the fact that one day the whole story's gonna get told and the truth's gonna come out. You don't have to prove anything right now. You don't have to convince anyone right now. Don't work too hard to set the record straight now. It'll all get set straight on judgment day. And the truth will finally be revealed. It's for everyone it's public. Third, the judgment is individual. The second part of this special verse says that each one may receive what is due him or her for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. I was talking with a person one time. I'll never forget this conversation. 
And by the way, this is actually kind of typical of conversations I've had through many years of sharing the gospel. I was talking to a guy. I was actually in his home. He had visited the church, and I'd gone, let him know I was coming. We had a sit-down conversation. He had visited the church, but when I talked to him about where he was with God, he was defensive. And he said, but pastor, what about all the hypocrites in the church? If you guys knew the things that went through my mind when people used excuses like that, you would be so proud of me for not just blasting people. But with a smile, and I hope, I hope with some gentleness, I said, well, that's an interesting question. I think there are a lot, I think this shocked him when I said, there are a lot of hypocrites in the church. There really, really are. I said, I'm one of them. I'm one of them. My practice does not match up to my profession. I'll tell you that right now. I'm so imperfect. So in that sense, I'm hypocritical. Yeah, but here, can, I have, can I ask you a question? All those hypocrites, and they're real, what does that have to do with you? Do you, do you believe? Are you saying that that's an excuse you're going to use on judgment day? God, there's a bunch of hypocrites in the church. I said, with all due respect, that ain't gonna hold water on judgment day. You can't hide behind hypocrites. They're gonna stand before God on their own, and you and I are gonna stand before God on our own. Well, we won't be able to say, but God, I'm better than most of those church members. Big deal. We all stand before God on our own and give an account. And we can't blame it on anyone else. Romans 14, 12 says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, why is this so significant? Because in our culture, people have become expert at blaming others and not accepting responsibility. Don't even get me started. Don't, don't, get me, don't get me going on that. It's always, it seems it's always somebody else's fault. Yes, yes, we are impacted by others. Yes, yes, yes. But eventually we have to take responsibility and own what is ours to own. And if we don't do it here, believe me, it is eventually gonna happen on judgment day. And we won't be able to pass the buck we got to deal with the plank in our own eye and not get fixated on the speck in someone else's eye. It's for everyone, it's public, it's individual, and finally, fourth, it's fair. The judgment is fair, that each one may receive what is, notice these words, do him what you owe. The word here means it's like a wage that gets paid back. It's what's due you according to the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Unlike the former coaches of the Bengals who were accused of favoritism, God does not play favorites, folks. His judgment is impartial, it's equitable, it's completely fair. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, what your upbringing, what your socioeconomic status, it doesn't matter what your education is, it doesn't matter what class of people you may think you're in or not in, we're all in the same boat on Judgment Day. No favoritism. 
Romans 2.11 says it bluntly, for God does not show favoritism. So when we stand before him, it's gonna be just, it's gonna be fair, and the all-seeing eyes of our great God are gonna see through the sham and pretense and pride, and we will be humbled before the God of this universe. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but as we look toward wrapping up today, I, I just, I don't know how one can read verses like the ones we've read today and it not affect the way we live. In fact, I'd say if you can read a passage like this one we focused on today and it not impact your attitude and actions day by day, all I can conclude is you've not really understood it. No stone will be left unturned. Everything hidden will be revealed. What a day that will be. Now, 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 as we close, I'm gonna give you, don't get worried right now, I'm gonna give you three brief challenges, and I do mean very brief. Number one, if you're not sure that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, oh, pray with one of our pastors or prayer counselors before you get away from here today. Nothing, nothing is more important than answering the Savior question, how you're gonna respond to Jesus' death and resurrection for you, okay? Second, for Christ followers out there, it would be ultra tragic if Christians, real disciples of Jesus, went out of here today fearing judgment day. Please listen closely. If you've already answered the Savior question, if you've repented of your sins and are trusting in Jesus' sacrifice for you at the cross as the basis for the forgiveness of your sins, listen, this may stun you, but you can face judgment day with confidence. Why, because you're a good guy? Oh, no. Why, because my good deeds outweigh my, no, 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 none of that. You can face judgment day with confidence because your name has been written in blood in the Lamb's Book of Life. Rejoice in that. John says in 1 John, in this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Again, confidence because you lived a perfect life? No, for one reason you can be confident. Because on an old rugged cross outside of Jerusalem, Jesus, the Lamb of God, was covered with my sins so that I could now be covered with his righteousness. That's the only reason I have confidence on the day of judgment. And if you've trusted in him, that is true of you. So no real Christ follower should fear judgment day. Your destiny has already been determined. And third and finally, if you're a follower of Jesus, the reality of judgment day should put pep in your step. It should put passion in your prayers. It should put sacrifice in your service. Because every moment matters.
And I don't know about you, but that makes me want to bring my A game to God, for God, every single day. Father, we're so grateful that you care about accountability. Boy, that is motivating. We see it in human life. We see it on sports teams. We see it in business organizations. It's certainly true in your kingdom work knowing that there is genuine accountability for how I live makes me want to bring my A game, Father. I pray that this would be true of all of us. We would do it out of a heart of love and gratitude, appreciation for how good you are to us and for your amazing grace that we don't have to face judgment day wondering if our name is in your book. Praise be to the living God, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.